<clears throat> good morning. Mom, good. I want to uh, say a couple of things before I begin the lesson. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, but if you've uh, looked at the bulletin, uh, it says that tonight the lesson is supposed to be on the variety of Revelation. I looked at the calendar wrong, thinking that today was the potluck and all that stuff. And uh, so tonight is not going to be about the variety of Revelation. Tonight we're going to be doing a, one of the Israel presentations on the Pool of Siloam. Uh, and so the variety of Revelation, you have to wait till next week to, to look at that. Uh, but that's one thing. The second thing is... Uh, uh, the Fried Hardeman Lectureship is coming up in uh, February, uh, starts on February 4th, and this year it's actually on the book of Revelation. And so if you have time or would like to go and be a part of that, I, want, I wanted you to know uh, that uh, that is what the theme of the uh, lectureship is this year. And uh, uh, me and my wife, we're certainly looking forward to it, but if there's any way that you can attend that, I think it'll be beneficial uh, for you to do that. But uh, let's talk about Revelation chapter 12. We're just going to do uh, this chapter by itself this morning. We've been taking uh, some big chunks. We looked at chapter 1 by itself when we began our study of this book, but we looked at chapter, chapters 2 and 3 together. Then we looked at chapters 4 and 5, and then chapters 6, 7, and the first, eight, first five verses of chapter 8 covering the seven seals. And then we looked at chapters 9, 10, and 11 uh, covering the, uh, the seven trumpets. Uh, but chapter 12, I believe, while we could have went on and connected it with chapter 13, and I think it would have been very, very beneficial for us to do that, I want us to look at this chapter by itself. And I'll tell you why that is why I chose to do that here in just a minute. But let me begin the lesson by saying this. It's probably something that you've heard before or something that you've said to somebody before. You tell them or you've heard, do not forget who you are. Maybe mom or dad has said that to you as a child. My mom and dad have certainly said that to me at times. Do not forget who you are. What do they mean by that when they tell us those things? Well, obviously they mean more than just don't forget that your name is Mitchell Rogers. Or don't forget that your last name is Rogers. Don't forget that uh, who your, your grandmother is. And, and what, it's more than that. I think what, the, what all of that entails is don't forget who you are in your character, who you are in your inner being, who you are from the heart is what that means. That we stand for something more in this family. You should stand for something more in this world. Remember who you are in your most inner being. I think that's what that means when parents or somebody else, a guardian or something, may tell us those kinds of things. It's basically going back to the heart. And this is no truer no more important than it is when we think about ourselves as God's people. Jesus says on all kinds of different occasions that the heart is important. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He said in, uh, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
He said in Matthew chapter 13, whenever he began speaking in parables, why does he change his tactics? Because up until that point, he's been telling people plainly, teaching lessons plainly, performing miracles, and then telling people about those things. But in chapter 13, he changes tactics and begins teaching in miracles or, or parables. Excuse me, why does he do that? Because the people's hearts had grown dull. And there was a certain group of people that may want to accept Him and His message. Those people that want to accept Him and His message, they are going to listen to those parables. They are going to try to figure out what it is that Jesus is talking about. They're going to ask questions. They're going to want to dive deeper into that material, wanting to know the nature of His message. But for people that really don't care, they're not going to take the time to do all of those things because their hearts have grown dull. The heart is everything to a child of God. And that comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. And we can find it in other places in Scripture too. But why do I say all of that? What does the heart have to do with the book of Revelation? Well, according to many people, and I believe this is right, Revelation chapter 12 is the heart of this entire book. It's the theological heart of this entire book. Everything in this book centers around this. Now make no mistake, we said that chapter 4, everything in chapters 4 and 5, everything before it points to it, everything after it points back to chapters 4 and 5. But when we think of who we are as God's people, when we think of the gospel, and when we think about the victory that we have in Jesus as members of that gospel, this is the theological heart of the entire book. Revelation may be broken down into a lot of different way in a lot of different ways, but it's simple to say that in chapters one through four we have temptation to sin. In chapters twelve through twenty-two, we have why we are being tempted to sin. And it's because of who we are as God's people. It's because Jesus and his church is victorious over Satan and evil. Satan doesn't like it very much, and so he comes against us with virtually every angle that he can. And he tries to thwart our purpose and stop us from being children of God. Chapter 12 reminds us of that. And so this morning, I want us to look at the heart of victory. For the next 20 minutes or so, in this chapter, we can basically break it down into three ways. There's three paragraphs here, and I think these three paragraphs communicate three different things about our victory. What does the heart of victory symbolize? Well, in the first place, the heart of victory means dominion. It means that we have dominion as God's people. In these first six verses, we've basically got three figures that we're introduced to. We are introduced to a woman... We are introduced to the son that she is going to give birth to. And we are introduced to a dragon. Now this dragon is, when you think about a dragon, you probably think about some story with this lizard type being flying through the air, breathing fire. That's not the kind of dragon we're talking about. This is more or less, the word is more or less a serpent of some kind. It probably did not breathe fire. It 
may or may not have wings. We just really don't know. But don't get kind of the image of a dragon that you normally get. Think of like this big serpent, this mean uh, serpent. And I think that will become evident why that image is being used as we go through this. But what do all three of these images represent? And how do they fit within this book and with the subject of the victory of God's people. Well, we'll look at the first, uh, first couple of verses, and we, talk, we learn about the woman, a little bit about the woman. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. If you want to know more about what this woman may represent, the different things that have, that have been offered, read my bulletin article because that's what I wrote it on. But this is what I think. I think that this woman refers to true Israel. And what that means is these are Jews who have left Judaism and they've come to follow Jesus. That's what I think this woman refers to. Now as the chapter unfolds, it's going to be clearer that the entire church is in view as far as the victory is concerned. But I think here it refers to true Israel. And so we've got some things that kind of point to that idea. You've got the sun, the moon, and the a crown on her head of 12 stars. That connects perfectly with what we just read in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 11, and the dream that Joseph had. But what do these things represent? Well, the, the, uh, the, the sun, the being clothed with the sun, is obviously a reference to a type of glory that has been given to this woman. In this case, been given to these people of God. You may remember what happens in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2 when Jesus goes up on top of the mountain of transfiguration. The Bible says that His face shone like the sun. He was transfigured and glorified on that occasion. The moon is also under her feet, showing that she has dominion over all of the material world. The carnal world is under her dominion. And then the twelve stars, the crown of twelve stars, I think obviously points back to those twelve patriarchs that we read about in the Old Testament. But she's pregnant. And she gives birth to this male child in verse 5. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to His throne. Virtually nobody disputes the fact that this child refers to Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about here in this child. Um, him ruling the nations with a rod of iron. You read Psalm chapter 2, a messianic psalm, and it says basically the same thing. We are talking about Jesus here. And you may wonder, you may read this and think, well, how in the world can this be Jesus and the woman be the church? Because it, Jesus gave birth to the church, right? It wasn't the other way around. Well, think about a couple of things. First of all, think about Isaiah 26, verses 17 and 18, and Isaiah 66, verses 7 and 8. Both of those passages describe God's people, Israel, as pregnant. And so that certainly fits the image that we have here. Another thing is, it fits with who the Jews were in bringing the Messiah to the world. The Jews were entrusted with this Davidic lineage that they were to carry throughout the ages that would bring Jesus to the world, where He actually could do what was needed to bring salvation to the entire world. But then in the third place, and this is probably the one that we forget about the most, but it's no truer than the other two, 
It's apocalyptic literature. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't always have to fit chronologically. Sometimes apocalyptic literature will do that. But we've got this woman. We've got the Savior. But then we've got this serpent. Another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. A great red dragon. Why is he red? It probably connects back to chapter 6 and verse 4 with that red horse coming and riding. He was all about war, all about bloodshed. It probably symbolizes the extent of his persecution. He has seven heads, ten horns on his heads, and seven diadems. He's got a lot of power and a lot of authority, and we'll see that very next week when we look at chapter 13. Because the first and the second beast in chapter 13 operate under the authority of this dragon or this serpent. And so he has all of these things, but he is defeated. God's people reign victorious. In verse 6 it says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. We were introduced to this number 1260 last week. It's the same thing as saying three and a half days, uh, three and a half years, 42 months, time, times, and half a time. All of those things refer to the exact same idea. And here we're talking about a short period of time, a period of testing, a period of turmoil for God's people, but it's a period of nourishment. We are protected by our victory in Jesus. What happens when victory takes place? When victory takes place, there is a winner and there is a loser. Now that loser can do one of two things. That loser can either submit himself over to the victor. You think about what we teach our children. Whenever they play Little League sports, at the end of the game, it doesn't matter who wins or who loses. We line up in a line and we give people high fives and we say, good game, good game, good game. You can either do that or you can have the complete opposite effect and refuse to hand your victory or hand your defeat over to the victor. Well... What does the dragon do? The dragon refuses. And we'll see that in the very next section. And so how are these verses uh, summarized, the first six verses? Well, you think about what it is. The church has a Savior. That Savior thought, or Satan thought, he defeated this Savior by killing Him on the cross. But he wasn't defeated at all. Instead, he rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father and he reigns over his people. But as we continue on in chapter, seven, or chapter 12 and verse 7, we learn that the heart of victory also equals destruction for Satan, for this dragon. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. I do not think that this refers to a literal fall of Satan from heaven. Some people use this to describe that. The verses that people point to in the Old Testament to describe that don't even talk about Satan. They're talking about kings. 
and their rain falling, and so it really doesn't seem to fit. What I think this is talking about is a direct relationship to what we just read in the first six verses. Satan, uh, Satan has thought he has defeated God by putting Jesus on the cross, but Jesus has risen from the dead, He's ascended to the Father, He reigns over His church, and the battle is won. Satan has been defeated. I think that fits with what this archangel Michael is all about. Who is Michael? Well, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12, he is the angel that fights for God's people, for Israel. And that's another reason why I think the woman refers to Israel. But he fights for God's people. He wins their battles for them. And that's exactly what happens here. He's defeated and there was no longer a place for him. But what is the extent of this victory? What's actually been destroyed when it comes to Satan? Everything that he is. Everything that he represents. Everything that he stands for. Notice what is said about Satan in verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent. Why is he described as an ancient serpent? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, was he not the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve to sin? Going all the way back to the beginning of the sin, he, uh, the beginning of sin, he is that ancient serpent. Jesus also said in John chapter eight and verse forty-four that he has been a murderer from the very beginning. A murderer of what? Well, physical death, spiritual death, all of those things come from the tempting power of Satan. But all of those, that power has been destroyed. We move on and it says he's called the devil. In other words, he's called the slanderer. He's called the Satan, the adversary, the deceiver of the whole world. And then in verse 10, he's also called the accuser of our brothers. He's been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. I think all of these things fit together in a couple of different passages that we read about in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul told Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. It seems that if we think about it long enough, if we talk to ourselves long enough, we can, we can get ourselves to believe anything, even if it's not true. And I think that's part of Satan being the accuser, being the slanderer. And he has that power, he holds that power over so many people in our world today. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul talked about the widows needing to marry so that they, uh, they, so, so that they give no opportunity for slander by the adversary. He's sitting there waiting on people to mess up. But all of these things have been destroyed by Jesus in the victory on the cross. The lesson we gain from all of this, I think, is the fact that the church is a destructive blow to Satan. There's more to be done later on when it comes to the destruction of Satan because he's obviously still alive and well on this earth, still tempting people. Jesus destroyed him on the cross. But even though he destroyed him on the cross, and he couldn't defeat God, what does he do? Well, in verse 13, he changes gears and he goes, he directs his focus to God's people instead of God Himself. But God's people in the heart of victory, 
have provision. We are provided for by God because we are His people. Notice a couple of things that we find here. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And then you look at verse 16, or verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away in the flood. And so this use, you may wonder, well, why in the world is, is, is he using water as an image for destruction? What, what does that have to do with anything? Have you ever tried to stand up in a strong current? It's pretty tough. I don't know how many of you have been whitewater rafting. I've been several times and it's really fun. But if you ever fall out of the raft, that current will sweep you under like that. I know we had our guides before that would jump off the back and they would just curl up in a ball and they would get sucked under and they would go down the rapid underwater and about 30 yards in front of the raft, they would all of a sudden just pop up. Not to mention, water is used as a sign of judgment in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 18, Isaiah 43 and verse 2. Water is used as a sign for judgment, but it's very, it's very powerful water is. But what happens? The power is used in the water. But when you look at verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Connected all the way back to that 1260 days we talked about earlier. And then in verses 16 and 17, the earth came to help to the help of the woman And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. At first, this serpent tried to destroy the Messiah. This man-child, he thought he did, putting him on the cross. But that child was resurrected, ascended to the Father, and was victorious over him. He realized he couldn't defeat God, so what does he do? He directs his focus to God's people. But even in that, he does not win. Because the church itself is a death blow to Satan. And God continues to provide for His people. Even though you and I go through a lot of trials and difficulties on this earth, we ought to remember that those trials and those difficulties do not have to define us. They don't have to determine who we are going to be in the future. They don't have to determine the type of attitude we are going to have in the future. What they should do is they should point us more closely to God and the victory of the cross. Because without that victory, those difficulties, those struggles, those problems would define us. But through Jesus... We're given a different perspective, a different outlook on life. And so at the heart of Christian victory, Christ wins, Satan loses, 
and the church is nourished. It's important for us to keep our lives pointed in the right direction. Aim toward that victory that not only we have now, but what we will have in the future when our earthly lives are over. Satan's loss to Jesus, that happened on the cross. We can be confident in that, but he will continue to lose to us if we keep our faith in Jesus, the one who is victorious. You may be here this morning and you don't feel very confident with where you are in your salvation. Maybe you've done some things that you're not proud of and you want to ask for prayers and you want to repent of those things and you want to come home. Take the opportunity to do that now. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a member of the Lord's church. You've never been baptized for the remission of your sins and you've never obeyed the gospel. God has never added you to His church. You haven't been, you haven't, uh, uh, been a part of that victory firsthand. If that's where you are, the time for you to have that victory is now. Don't wait another second. Wherever you are in your life, God is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Reach out to Him now as we stand and sing.